This is animator Randy Cartwright, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, a show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. Hello, I'm Al Jungo, longtime Marvel, Disney, and Star Wars fan, big pop culture guy, and you can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm your friendly neighborhood artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. It's me, Dave Bossard. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, how are you? I, I, I want to give you a belated happy Father's Day. Same to you, my friend. Uh, doing well. And uh, ended up having Father's Day with the both sides of the family on two different days. So it was a Father's Day weekend. And Fantastic. I, yeah, thanks. And it was a lot of fun. The kids are growing like weeds, of course. So uh, everything's happy and honky dory here at the Go household. Uh, how was how's uh, things going for you? I mean, you're back from France, of course, and you're rocking. It took rolling. a little bit. It took a few days to recover. Yeah, uh, from from the long haul trips. Uh, but uh, we're we're kind of back in the groove. It is a busy week coming up. Uh, I have to say, uh, there's uh, a 35th anniversary a Who Framed Roger Rabbit reunion. I'll be going Oof. to. Wow. Uh, later this week. Wow. And then uh, I'll talk about this later, but I'm doing a, a Facebook live event on Thursday. Uh, and then next weekend, I'm at a historians conference talking all things Disney. Wow. That's awesome. You are yeah. very busy. But you know what? We have a great show today. We have uh, Joe Lanzicero, uh, who is a Disney uh, artist. He's a, uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, he's a former Imagineer. Um, and we're, and I have to, I have to say, Al John, this is really the first interview we're doing with Joe. Cause we're going to do multiple interviews that are going to be sort of spaced out over the coming six months. Um, you know, Joe has had a storied career, uh, both at Disney animation and at Walt Disney Imagineering. And uh, we're going to talk about his early career and how he got into the business and, and his transition over to Imagineering today. But we're going to have him back to talk about the Disney Cruise Lines, the uh, parks. Um, we're going to talk about Paris Disneyland. We're going to talk about Hong Kong Disneyland. I mean, we're going to be talking about a lot of different aspects of the Disney universe with Joe, uh, in the coming six months. So this is just the beginning and he's a terrific guy. So I can't wait for us to get to that interview. That's amazing. Uh, Joe is a great talent. And, um, of course 
you know, a lot of people know him from the arc, but you know, the fact that he has been working on these experiences with the parks and Disney cruise line is really cool. In fact, I think congratulations in order for, for you and Joe both because uh, Disney cruise line, once again, uh, honored this past week with being one of the, the best cruise lines and, uh, immersive experiences out there, uh, for people, including the, uh, animators palette, uh, restaurant, I think, uh, was yeah. also mentioned in, in the press this past week. So congratulations to the both of you on that. Yeah, no, the animators palette is a fantastic experience for anybody. And, and just in general, uh, Al John, the Disney cruise lines, they, they do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I've been on so many of those Disney cruises over the years when I was working at the company and installing shows and things like that on, on, uh, and it's just been uh, incredible. An incredible experience. They know how to do it right. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. So I'm looking forward to talking about, uh, you know, Joe's work and and just uh, hanging out, uh, talking about all the projects that you and he had worked on over the years. But uh, having said that, um, also, you know, we kind of brushed over it last week really quick before we get into the uh, – you know, the picks of the week and the news and everything. But once again, congratulations, Dave, 3D National Parks there. Uh, your book, 3D National Parks, like you've never seen them before, earning an award, a gold winner award. So uh, congratulations on once again uh, putting out some award-winning books. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And and I also want to just give a shout out to a lot of people who, who sent some very nice comments to me on social media uh, about that. So uh, thank you all very much. That's amazing. Well, congratulations to you. And now let's go over our stuff that we saw this week. All right, Dave. Another week has passed, and uh, we were busy watching some stuff on the old boob tube and in the theaters. What have you been up to? Yeah, I went to see The Flash in IMAX. Ooh. And uh, I'll, I'll just let our uh, audience know uh, the uh, sort of synopsis. Worlds collide when The Flash uses his superpowers to travel back in time to change the events of the past. However... When his attempt to save his family inadvertently alters the future, he becomes trapped in a reality in which General Zod has returned, threatening annihilation. With no other superheroes to turn to, the Flash looks to coax a very different Batman out of retirement and rescue an imprisoned Kryptonian, albeit not the one he's looking for. Well, I, I I'm going to say this is two two thumbs up for me. Okay, this was this was a very fun film. Uh, I disagree with some of the uh, negative reviews out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are slamming it for its uh, visual effects and stuff. I didn't think the visual effects were bad. Um, and, and trust me, I would tell you that, uh, if they were terrible out the gate, yeah. there were some that were like, mm, I, you know, that could have been a little bit different or better design wise, but in general, I, I really like this movie. And I have to say Ezra Miller is a really terrific actor. Okay. He, he plays two versions of himself in two different timelines that uh-huh. come together. Yeah. He's two Barry Allens. Yeah. And they're two distinct personality yes. Barry Allens. Yes. Which, you know, I, I think takes a, a lot of talent for somebody to pull off convincingly. 
I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that was a fear of mine knowing that he he is not he doesn't have a lot of um acting resume under his belt a lot of works under uh, his belt th- this guy's good okay this guy's good uh, and the two Barry Allens are distinct personalities in the same frame gotcha and and they did it so convincingly that it just felt very natural so uh kudos to him uh regardless of all of his you know personal issues and and problems off screen uh he did a fantastic job on screen the other thing i want to mention to our listeners and and al john you're going to be blown away there are so many cameos in this film and i'm not going to you know, spoil it for people because I I think it's really fun when when you see some of the people that come on screen. It is absolutely amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. But but the two Batmans that you see, and I'm not going to mention the other Batmans, uh, but the two that you see are Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck, two that have been in the previews. So this is right? not a spoiler. And, and and I will tell you, Michael Keaton is Batman. Yeah, he he's out of all of them. I think he's probably the best Batman. Yeah, o- although I will say uh, Pattinson is is that uh, the yeah, Robert the Pattinson, most, yeah. Robert Robert Pattinson of the most recent Batman. I thought did a very good job. I did too. Uh, but but Michael Keaton is fantastic in this film. So uh, it's two thumbs up. I think this is a movie you really have to see in a movie theater. So I hope our listeners will, you know, uh, uh, take my, uh, uh, you know, my review uh, and two cents and go see, um, you know, this film in the theater. It, it was just excellent. Yeah. Um, the other film that I saw this week was actually on the small screen. It's called Flame and Hot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's on Disney Plus and Hulu. Yes. And uh the uh, uh, synopsis of this is Richard Montanez, the son of a Mexican immigrant, uh, was a janitor at Frito-Lay when he came up with the idea for Flamin' Hot Cheetos. His creation, inspired by the flavors of his community, revitalizes Frito-Lay and disrupts the food industry. So there's a bit of controversy around this, this film and the story as to whether uh, Richard was the guy that really invented Flaming Hot, uh, you know, and they touch on a little of that in the movie. But I, I'm going to tell you all, this is a very uplifting and inspiring film. And it's a uh, directing um, debut for Eva Longoria. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, look, uh, it, it's it's a good movie. Uh, it's very inspiring. Um, you know this this shows that no matter where you are in life, uh, if you come up with a good idea and you persevere, you could really you know make something of yourself. And uh, and Richard uh, Montanez went on to uh, become uh, an executive at Frito Lay uh, for multicultural uh, foods. Uh, and, uh, you know, worked there for some 40 years, uh, went from janitor to vice president. And uh, it's a great cast. Jesse Garcia plays Richard Montanez. Uh, Tony Shalhoub plays Roger Enrico, who's the CEO of Frito-Lay at the time. 
Um, and you've got uh, Dennis um, uh, Haysbert, hmm. uh, who's a, a veteran actor. You've seen him in tons of stuff. Um, you know, he he plays the plant the plant manager that gives Richard a break, takes him under his wing. Um, it, it, it's a it's an uplifting, inspiring film, and and it's a great story. And as I think Ava Longoria said, um, this is Richard's story. You know, this this is his story. And I think in in, in our world, you know, if you come up with a great idea, there's a good chance that somebody else has come up with a great idea similar. Mm-hmm. You know, and and in the film, they're talking about, you know, Frito-Lay experimenting with, uh, you know, these um, uh, hot flavors uh, in their test kitchens, trying to develop products. But Richard uh, went and did it and uh, and and did sort of a grassroots uh, get the product out into the community. Uh, and, and it turned out to be a huge success. So, uh, I, I would recommend that, uh, you watch that film on Disney plus or Hulu. Uh, it was very enjoyable. Yeah. I didn't know if it was a documentary or now you're telling me, you know, it's an actual film about, about him kind of like the dropout. You know, know, it's a, uh, it's a movie based on this guy's autobiography. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay. Very cool. And uh, I liked it. Nice. Um, I also watched a couple of episodes of Happy Happy Valley season three, which is on Acorn TV. Um, based on your recommendation, Al John, I did watch the first episode of American Born Chinese on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, mm, okay, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to try and watch a couple more episodes. I wasn't completely sold on the first one. Uh, but uh, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a chance with the second and third episode, because that's typically what's the, uh, uh, the MO on a lot of shows that drop. You have to go beyond the first episode. Sometimes the first episode is trying to find its sea legs and it's not as great as once you get into the season. I I found that to be the case with that, that show as well. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a slow burner. Um, unlike Cobra Kai, with me and I hate to put apples and oranges together in the same cart, but yeah, you know, Cobra Kai, you know exactly what you get into and they get into it really quickly. And uh, this is a little bit of a slow burn. So, um, yeah. And, and it's because it's new. I mean, Cobra Kai was an established property. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I also watched, uh, another couple of episodes of silo on Apple plus, and I'm happy to report that they just announced silo has been picked up for a season two, which oh. I'm very thrilled about. Cause I think this is a great series. Um, and I highly recommend it. And I'm almost done with season two of Picard on Paramount plus. Wow. And I'm just, I'm just loving that show. That's good. Yeah. Now, uh, I will say that uh, the first episode for season two of Star Trek uh, uh, Brave New Worlds uh, has uh, dropped. So I'm going to wait for a couple of more episodes to drop before I get into season two. But I really like season one of uh, of Star Trek Brave New Worlds. Oh, there you go. Same here. Looking forward to this next season. I haven't. Yeah, I've got it queued up, but I haven't seen it yet. So there you go. All right. Cool. What have you been watching? Well, this week, uh, Disney Plus decided to drop the Stan Lee documentary. 
a uh, hundred years of dreaming, a hundred years of creating Stan Lee. Of course, that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, the Disney 100 <clears throat> celebration as well. And it's kind of a biography. A lot of it, um, you know, directed by David uh, Gelb, if I'm saying his name properly, mm-hmm. uh, focuses on his early career at Marvel, starting out, you know, at Timely Comics and uh, being basically thrown into the mix of editor when everybody else you know, had kind of vacated, you know, uh, doing the books, the comics at the time and growing that property, growing the properties there from the forties all the way through the sixties in, in Marvel's, uh, silver age and, and beyond, they do touch a lot about some of the creative conflicts of the Marvel or the house of ideas, as it were, as they were going through the the three the three kings of Marvel Comics, you had Stan Lee, the writer and creator. You had Jack Kirby, the king of comics, who's one of the best illustrators out there, and also, um, oh man, uh, now now I'm having a a brain fart here. But um, uh, Spider Man's a creator. Oh my lord! Now I'm having this is this is got, I'm, all my comic book credit is going out the door, Dave. That's um, okay. But um, but the the three of them kind of going back and forth uh, with each other, and they kind of gloss uh, over uh, a little bit of of what happened. Um, is, is there there was a, a sort of uh, creative conflicts between the three? Yeah, there was. There was, but that, you know, uh, were, were they were all friends, weren't they? Yeah, they all started up as friends, and I think um, you know that's the thing that you you start and then whether it's ego or creative things started getting in the way of business and things of that, uh, that, that happens. Um, but yeah, you know, something I, I, I will tell you from experience. I mean, when you get a group of artists together, each artist has their own sensibilities and their own views and you could have that, you know, bumping of egos. Yes, and it's Steve Ditko, by the way. Steve Ditko, Steve Ditko uh, yes. who's another creative uh, behind uh, Spider-Man and and uh, uh, Doctor Strange. So there is that, and I think, you know, Stanley is a very um, and I met met Stanley, and he is just a gem. Uh, he was a gem of a human being, and I think that over time there was just I think some of the artists felt really slighted, um, and I think you. I liken this to being in a band, you know, when you're in a band and you, especially uh, I was in bands that had female lead singers, they oftentimes would get all the glory and the rest of us would be treated like wallpaper. I, I, I used to joke that uh, it was always our singer and the cardboard cutouts because it could be any one of us. No one cared about us. It was always about the lead singer. And that's yeah. just something you had to kind of get over, you know, in, in, as your band got more and more successful, the same goes for Marvel. Stan Lee was the mouthpiece. He was the 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 face of the company, and the rest of the artists were as as creative and as talented as they were as collaborators. Just never were seen as Stan Lee. Yeah. So, but it's really good. So check it out. I, I just wish they had a little bit more about the end of his uh, career, as it were. Um, you know, kind of as the director emeritus of of Marvel. But uh, it is what it is. They, they spend a lot of good time there. Um, the other series I've been watching, Black Mirror, has returned to Netflix, and much like the Twilight Zone and shows of that nature, uh, it's back, and it really is a science fiction 
uh, based morality play. And I really, really like this series. So now that it's back, go back through. If you haven't seen uh, previous um, seasons of it, it's an easy binge because there's maybe six episodes per season. There's maybe three seasons. It's been This season has been delayed for a myriad of different reasons, including the pandemic. So go out there, check it out if you're into that kind of cerebral Twilight Zone. I, I hate to say Twilight Zone a lot, but that's kind of what I get. Um, with Black Mirror. So uh, the first four episodes, uh, my wife and I binged, and we're like, here it is. It's back. It's crazy, but it's it's really good. Okay. And then here we have something that's a little bit of a, a genre breaker for me because uh, I don't usually watch stuff like this, but I saw The Longest Third Date on Netflix. First mm. of all, it was in the documentary section, so you know I had to give it a look. And it's really about a couple that found themselves on a dating app several years ago. And mm. it's difficult for people to, to find love in the city, um, in the New York area. And they found love, uh, albeit weirdly enough, during the pandemic, Dave, get this, they find each other through this dating app. They go on the first date, second date, third date. They're like, hey, let's go ahead and, and have a trip. Let's go out of this country. And they find themselves in Puerto Rico, I think. And uh, then the pandemic happens or Costa Rica, it's Costa Rica. And they find themselves in the pandemic. They can't get home. They were stuck there on their for third how date how long? for like how long? three, four months, Dave. Wow. And this guy, wow. this guy did not, did not tell her that he was a, a vlogger. So come to find out he has been documenting this entire time of him traveling and vlogging about his experiences. And now it had become a vlog about he and she both kind of navigating the difficulties of the pandemic and trying to find hotels and trying to find their way home. And is this relationship going to survive? What kind of relationship is this? And my boyfriend, girlfriend, um, did I get her pregnant? Uh, you know, what kind of birth control do they have there in Costa Rica? You know, um, and what do they tell their families about dating someone they basically had just met? And then did, did they ultimately get married? Uh, yeah, I think they ultimately got married and um, have a family I, or whatever. I, there, yeah, there's a happy ending to this whole thing. There is a happy ending. And yeah. I, I just laugh because it's it's if he wasn't documenting this uh, this experience we wouldn't have this show but i think it's right. really interesting to see how at the outset of the pandemic how people and relationships were how they morphed how they coped with being cooped up together in the same place um you know what kind of restrictions there were and dave it, i it just brought back a lot of memories for me because i feel like in a lot of like when we started this podcast it was during that time and I feel like we were kind of in a in a loop, like a time loop. Every day, every week was the same. And we were going through. I don't through. know. I, I think the first couple months it was like that for us. Mm -hmm. But then we just got into this groove. Oh, yeah. But, you know, but, and, yeah. and we changed it up and we went for drives and, you know, we were we were doing things, but we were isolated together. Okay. So that's it. Right. And yeah. It's it's kind of weird how how some people like you and your wife kind of um, 
went into that mode and and some people retreated and some people like we just moved into a house so we were like enjoying our house by ourselves you know it's kind of a really yeah, weird yeah. thing but this is a really interesting film and it's lighthearted it's not too heavy at all but it is interesting to see the human dynamic at, at play here so, uh, so this people. is like an hour and a half two hour movie yep yeah it's an hour and a half easy easy yeah. watch but it's charming the people are awesome. actually very charming and it, it does have a happy ending and it's something that you don't see for me every yeah. day in terms of watching so check out the third the longest third date it is a, a perfect name and, for this show and, and it's also a great uh document of uh part of the pandemic it really is and you know that vlog is still up there so you could actually look at the source material and see them actually going through their day-to-day struggles, trying to find different wow. hotels and bed and breakfasts and, and stuff like that, Airbnbs. So check it out. So right. that is what we watched this week. What are you watching this week? Let us know. Send us an email and we'll discuss it on an upcoming episode. Hey, by the way, I just want to mention, because it just came across, um, it looks like The Flash is going to open to about $72 million for the four-day weekend. Wow, that's you know? not bad. Yeah, and when I say four days, I'm including the Thursday night previews. Mm-hmm. You got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So uh, Monday being the holiday today. Uh, yeah. And also, uh, yikes, uh, uh, Pixar's Elemental uh, is only going to open to like uh, $30, $32 million. Oof. Yeah, that's like, wow, you know, and and by the way, I've been seeing in the press that a lot of people feel like it's a so I I read one place where it said diluted uh, inside out, Mm -hmm. you know, that Mm -hmm. that a lot of people are saying, gee, that looks like inside out, you know, so I I feel bad about that because it's a beautiful looking movie. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, But once again. Uh, give me more in the trailer. Like I have no idea what this trailer is about, you know? Yeah. And I feel like yeah. they were hedging their bets. It's like, if we're going to promote certain films this year, it's not going to be this. And it's like, it's in the middle of blockbuster film season, guys, what is going on over here? People are looking for an opportunity to go to the movies and find a good Disney or Pixar film to take the whole family as an alternative to um, the flash or, you know, fast yeah. X or whatever that's going on and uh that's too bad they're missing the mark there i'll have to see it myself i i personally don't have it on my list and that tells you if that tells you something like i yeah. i was excited about it for d23 but yeah I, I i don't know um yep well anyway all right moving on. let's move on shall we Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Well, uh, Dave, do you think maybe the decisions of the CFO has anything to do with how the movies are marketed? You know, maybe. You know, uh, honestly, you know, they, they've got a hold on the purse strings. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, this, this story is kind of interesting. It was a bit of a surprise when I saw it. Christine McCarthy, the CEO, uh, excuse me, the CFO of the Disney company uh, is exiting on a mega medical leave. And, and by the way, this is legit. 
uh, her husband is ill and has been for quite some time yes. and is in a healthcare facility. And, uh, you know, I, I know Mike McCarthy. Uh, I, I had served on a, uh, a committee for uh, a charitable event uh, a couple years in a row and uh, super nice guy. And I, I, you know, it's sad that he's ill and, uh, you know, uh, it seems like it's not going to improve. Well, I I think this is a thing that people go through, um, you know, when loved one's health declines, you have to take a yeah. step back and, and realize, like, this is really important for me to devote my time, whatever time I have left with my partner. Um, and this is what this what needs to, this is what needs to happen. And she's taking the steps in order to do that. So. Yeah, it's good. It's going to be a seamless transition. You know, she's going to continue consulting. Uh, her number two is stepping up uh, to uh, do the day to day. And I, I think it's going to be perfectly fine. Well, there you have it. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how things kind of, um, you know, roll out for, for the number two. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's uh, and it's and it is sad. Uh, what what happens but you know once again that's uh that's the way of things unfortunately it, it is now how about this samuel l jackson's nick fury getting a midlining disney plus review for secret invasion dave you think this is fair i mean only a couple episodes have been put out there for the press to review and uh people are saying it's meh you know, you know, I I generally try not to listen to some of those critics. You know, I I I have found over the years that that they're all over the map. Uh, there's a few that you know generally you you might agree with, but uh, for the most part, I want to go see the thing myself. Uh, that's why I didn't really listen to the reviews about the flash. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was some criticism, uh, in the press about uh, the visual effects and this and that. Well, guess what? Uh, I think it's a good movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. So it just shows you how subjective all this stuff is. And, and by the way, I was going to say to you, Al John, I never heard a secret invasion. There was no like <laughs> teaser. Did you know that this was coming? I did know. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, I then mean, you can revoke my geek. No, card. no, it's fine, Dave. It's fine. There's a lot of stuff lying out there, but the fact of the matter is, is that you know, I, I believe that people are looking at when you have a six episode series arc, you're looking at part one of three in a three act play. Right. Yeah. So so those type of things that you see in a, in a major motion picture that they truncate into two hours these days, um, they're expanding out to a couple different a couple episodes in order to establish the space that our characters are living in. You know, what what is what is going on? Let's build the world out. And sometimes it's a little bit a little bit slow, a little bit plotting, maybe a, a little bit fluffy uh, in there. So it probably could have used a little trim, but. Hey, I haven't seen it myself. I did see the first five minutes of it, though, and I am intrigued. First of all, Samuel L. Jackson, I don't know him to make a a a bad film, and I say that lovingly because of Snakes on a Plane yeah, uh, no, and Shaft listen, and things like that. I, lo I, I love Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. and I love his Nick Fury character, character I, so I'm going to watch this series when it drops. Certainly. I'm excited. Well, and look at his co-stars too. John Cheadle, uh, we love Don Cheadle, Amelia Clark, Olivia Coleman. There are a lot of great people here yeah. in this episode, and this is going to be kind of 
a espionage uh, invasion of the body snatchers kind of a political yeah. drama and this looks to be great and i follow the marvel stories uh and the comics so i i'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to handle this uh episode or, or this series rather so be on the lookout for this series as it drops here what next week i think yeah. is when it drops so the whole series mm-hmm. so be on the lookout for that i'm excited june 21st on disney plus and by the way, Don Cheadle, Cal Arts alumni. Oh, yeah, yeah. How about that? He is. How yes. about that? Yeah. So he was an artist, huh? Well, he he was in the acting program at uh, oh uh, at Cal Arts. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. great. Well, you would know you were you know director, yeah, one of the yeah. board of directors. So. Yeah. All right, so. Bonnaroo, you know, we we move into this uh, the music, uh, you know, portion of this. And I really enjoy what is Bonnaroo Bonnaroo is a celebration of music and art. Uh, It's a big festival that's held over there at the um, in Tennessee, uh, just down south of of Nashville. It's kind of like a Woodstock esque. Uh You know, if I say Woodstock esque, people automatically go, yeah, big old festival Lollapalooza style show, multiple genres of music. From anywhere from, uh, you know, the uh, My Morning Jacket to Foo Fighters, Paramore, hip hop is is represented in there. If you love music, you love this. And I've been to several, Dave. I've been to several Bonnaroo's. Are these all day concerts? All day concert festivals. Are they multiple stages? Yes, all of that. Multiple days, multiple stages. And you can check out all of the action from the farm there. Uh, so check out uh, the official streaming service for Bonnaroo on Hulu. And uh, they started Thursday. And um, there you go. So go ahead and stream it. There's a lot of stuff there, uh, as I mentioned, performer-wise. Foo Fighters, which uh, is great. You know, one of my favorite bands of Foo Fighters with Dave Grohl. Also, My Morning Jacket, uh, Foo Fighters, Paramore, and so much more. I'm looking here. If you like hip hop, there's three, six mafia. That's going to be in there. Uh, Just uh, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Um, Cheryl Crow is going to be there. She's been on several different ones there before Um, the band Camino. If you love rock, we've got Franz Ferdinand for alternative rock, the Pixies, Humphreys McGee. If you like a roots rock, the revivalists, Foo Fighters, um, Molly Tuttle and the Golden Highway. So there's a bunch of different genres from Americana, alternative rock, some hip hop. Um, yeah, so that's exciting, Dave. I'm looking forward to checking out the footage. It's always a lot of fun. And I've experienced, luckily for me, I've experienced Bonnaroo from backstage several times. And it's a, it's a hoot. It's a hoot. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, check it out. Dave, you sent me this because uh, you had finished up the series FUBAR with Arnold Schwarzenegger there at Netflix, correct? Yes. And uh, here you go. It's getting a second season, FUBAR. Yeah, and and you know something? It's getting a second season because it's pretty good. It's not bad. (laughs) It's not bad. You got to get through that first episode, you know, because that was another one. You're trying to, you know, they're they're trying to find their sea legs and give you the backstory or whatever is going on. But uh, I enjoyed it. Nice. And uh, I like Arnold, so I'm happy that they've picked up uh, season two. That's great. I have to say that I love the ads of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Netflix as a chief action officer. 
Yeah. The commercials with Chris Hemsworth are amazing. Like, I just sit there and I laugh, laugh, laugh. Um, uh, some of the best stuff they've created are the commercials for Netflix. So go figure. Oh, by the way, that just reminded me. You know, when I was talking about The Flash earlier, uh-huh. if you go see The Flash, you have to watch all of the credits to see a really great uh, little teaser at the end. That's right. Stay for the credits. And, I already and heard. It, and, it, and it, you know, oftentimes they'll show part of the credits and then they'll do that, uh, you know, uh, extra scene or whatever. In this movie, you have to watch the entire credit roll uh-huh. to the very end. And then they have it. Then they're going to blow your mind. Oh, it was fantastic. It's hilarious. It really is. I don't want to I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Uh, I've already been just, spoiled, so it's, yeah, it's ju- all good. just realize you got to sit in the theater through the entire credit roll, which is like 10 minutes. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth yeah. it. Check it out. All right. In our regrets for this week. Wow, it's been a really uh, heavy week. We had the loss of Treat Williams. Uh, this who, who passed this away. was such a shock. What a shock this was. I mean, just it, 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 it's it, it's it leaves you speechless. It really does, you know, because this guy was so vibrant. He was at the peak of his career, 71 years old. Uh, you know, he's been in so many great films, Prince of the City. He's been in Everwood. I mean, so many great things that he's done throughout his career. And for this to happen, holy mackerel. I know. Yeah. Um, you know, recently Treat Williams was on the show SWAT and it's something that my wife and I watch quite a bit. Of course, Everwood, he's been on there so many different shows and it's a really tragic time because he was killed in a, a motorcycle accident. And it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a big shame because I think he had a lot more to offer. Yeah. Treat Williams oh at gosh. the age of 71 motorcycle accident in Vermont. On June 13th, very, very sad day indeed. So rest in peace. Yeah, and, and, you know, uh, I mean, there was a, such an outpouring because so many people felt that he's an actor's actor. Yes. Uh, that uh, and, and so many said that he was just an incredibly nice person, uh, you know, and, and he, he lived on a small farm up in Vermont. Uh, and it's fairly rural up there. So, you know, that'd be the place to ride a motorcycle, but you know, it just goes to show you that the, anytime, anywhere, you know, somebody does something stupid and it could end your life. 100% shame. Well, someone who had a long life and storied life is John Ramita senior Marvel artist who co-created Wolverine and Mary Jane Watson, the, uh, the uh, second half of the better half of Spider-Man's Peter Parker <clears throat> dies at the age of 93. What a tremendous artist he was. Um, and his son, John Romita Jr., who works for Marvel Comics currently, says, I had uh, posted, I say this with a heavy heart. My father passed away in peace in his sleep. He's a legend in the art world, and it would be my honor to follow in its footsteps. Please keep your thoughts and condol- condolences here out of respect for my family. Um he ha- he was the greatest man I'd ever met, and he is one of the all-time greats in terms of comic books. Uh, he graduated from the School of uh, Industrial Art in Manhattan in, in the 40s, went into commercial illustration, and then worked in Marvel for a brief stint over there in the 50s, and then DC Comics and returned to Marvel in the 66, which is the Silver Age of uh, of comics 
and uh, being one of the more, I, I think after Steve Ditko left uh, Marvel, being one of the more famous artists who did Spider-Man through some mm-hmm. of his most iconic runs, uh, some of the most iconic Marvel covers, Spider-Man No More, where he turns away and he puts his costume in the trash, or where he marries Mary Jane Watson in a very uh, special edition uh, episode of The Amazing Spider-Man that I had. I owned that. I owned a lot wow. of it. So uh, I collected a lot of his work over the years. Marvel Entertainment had said John Romita Sr. was a pillar of the Marvel Universe and known for his talent. Defining decades of Marvel's most well-known stories and characters, the Marvel family has lost one of its legends, and we mourn the loss of a creative giant. Our hearts are with his family and loved ones. Dave, um, what a giant of this industry for comics. You know, I mean, he had a great life. Anybody that lives into their 90s, fantastic life. Let me ask you something. When was the golden age of comics? The golden age of comics really happened back um, in the 1920s. In the 1920s, uh, you'll see characters like um, Superman and Batman, kind of, yeah. uh, and the Submariner um, and Captain America. They came from the Golden Age. Okay. And then the gotcha. Silver Age happened in the 60s with the rebirth of Marvel. Um, so Marvel ended up putting out the Fantastic Four, um, the X-Men, and, um, and Spider-Man all during that time. So those were kind of like, the, yeah. the big heroes, but yeah, the golden age was definitely the first run of superheroes, a Simon and Schuster, um, you know, um, Superman and, and, uh, uh, the Kane Batman series. So there yeah, you go. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have some Marvel artists on here at some point talk because, uh, I think it'd a, be great. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool you... going back through that history, especially during the silver age where everything was popping mm-hmm. and Marvel was firing all cylinders. So, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, that was the news for this week, and now we get into our, int- our interview segment. Uh, Joe Lance Cicero, Disney artist and Imagineer, right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have another fantastic guest this week on the Skull Rock Podcast. We've got retired Imagineer and animator Joe Lance Cicero. Joe, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Well, Dave, thank you so much for having me on. Well, and you can hear the live studio audience is going nuts. <laughs> like they do for all our guests. <laughs> so, what an Joe, honor. <laughs> Joe, it, 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 it's so great to have you on the show. Um, and and I, I have to let our listeners know that uh, you and I bumped into one another at Jerry Reese's, uh, the Reese's Pieces, the Reese's, the, the Reese family art show uh, in Burbank. We ran into one another like a month ago. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have you on the show. And here you are. And what I always ask our guests when we when we first get rolling is how did you, Joe, get into animation? Because that's where you really started. You started in animation at Disney before you moved over to Imagineering, like like so many people at Disney did since the inception of Imagineering. Right. So how yeah. did, how did you get to Disney? What, what was your path? You know, Dave, it's probably the same as yours and so many others. It's like um, I, you know, I grew up in the 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 nineteen late fifties, you know, in the early sixties, 
and um, watching Uncle Walt on TV. And, um, you know, Disneyland opened in 55. I was born in 56. So it was pretty much a part of my growing up, you know, going to Disneyland, uh, watching the Disney show. And um, as far back as I can remember, I loved to draw. And um, it wasn't long before, you know, between watching Uncle Walt and going to Disneyland, it's like, I'm going to work there. So it was in some ways it wasn't even a choice. It was like just it it happened. Um, did, did you grow Did you grow up in Southern California? I I grew up in Burbank, California. Oh, you did okay, fantastic. Yes, I didn't did. realize that. Yeah, and, and, and so you you had Disneyland in your backyard, basically. I, well, hey, yeah, the Disney. Studio. In fact, I remember as soon as I got old enough to to ride my bike across town, because we lived on the other side of Burbank from where the Burbank Studios was, I would ride my bike down to the to the Disney Studios. And of course, it was they had this giant hedge, you know, you couldn't see in, but I would do everything I could to try to peek in. I, mean, I remember there was one little area where you could see part of the Zorro set, right? <laughs> And and I'm sure you remember, Dave, when we got to the studio, because I think we got there around the same time. Well, I, I started I started in May of 84. You were there, I think, already. Yeah, you, I start I started in June of June of 79. There yeah. you go. OK. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the scheme of things, not that that, not that much difference in time. But um, yeah, you remember, Mike, it was still like a real movie lot. There was the Zorro set. They had the, the little town square back there. I remember at lunchtime or, you know, during breaks, we go back there and we had the volleyball court. We played vol volleyball. In the there, there was the Victorian Street where they filmed Pollyanna and they yeah. had the, the, the mansion or, quote, the Victorian home where yeah. the million dollar duck was filmed. Uh, right. <laughs> Although, with the, the built in swimming pool in the backyard and all that. Which I think that I remember um, one of the Herbie films, he. He drives into the swimming pool. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, and you went from the Victorian Street into uh, the Reluctant Dragon, uh, or no, Peach Dragon, Peach Dragon uh, the, yeah. the New England set, uh, yeah. and then that led you into front the frontier, the the old Western town, right. which mm -hmm. then led you into Zorro. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a great time. Yeah, we were and just the, the craziness too. And that's what I remember there was just this spirit, incredible spirit of creativity back then. I mean, I'm sure it's still there, but you know, we were you, you and myself and all the others, you know, we we were fresh out of Cal Arts. Um, we all came with this burning desire to do something great. You know, um, and let me let, let me let's step back a second, though, because sure. you, you grew up in Burbank. You rode your bike down to the studio. <laughs> You're always yeah. trying to peek through the hedges. But, uh, you know, from there, uh, you got into high school. You were you were always doing art. Uh, yeah. What what led you to go to Cal Arts? Was it just because it was close by or was that the only place you wanted to go? Because that was a feeder to Disney. No, actually. It was a interesting series of circumstances that led me to Cal Arts um, that still had a, a weird Disney connection. So besides loving to draw, I played the drums from the age of 10 on. And in high school, I was in this band called Seacliff. Um, we were pretty good. And the lead guitarist in the band was this gentleman, John Debney. 
Now, if you look up John Debney, John, oh, Debney, John Debney, the composer, yeah, he's a very famous movie composer, uh, nominated for Academy Award. I mean, and very prolific, very busy. But John was the guitarist and singer in the band. And his father, Lou Debney, was a producer at Disney at the studios. Uh, Lou was, I think, one of the directors and producers on the Mickey Mouse Club and on some of the shorts. Um, his nickname was Whitey. Everybody loved Lou. He was a great guy. And so um, so I was, I'm playing drums in this band with with John and these guys. Um, but I always still had my love for drawing. And I, I remember I was working on a short little animated film and uh, I was showing it to to Lou, you know, and um, I won't go into it because it's, it's a longer story. Um, because there was this moment where I had to make this choice between am I going to be a rock and roller or am I going to be an animator? And kind of the universe kind of made the choice for me because we had we had uh, this opportunity to sign with Warner Brothers and and ultimately it didn't work out. And at that same time, Lou said, hey, Joe, they're starting this program up at CalArts. It was the first year of the character animation program. He said, um, do you have a portfolio? Well, no, I said, not really. I said, you know, I have the, you know, this film that I'm working on and, you know, some of the stuff that I did in high school. So I scrambled to get a portfolio together. And I really have to thank Lou because I think he kind of pushed me a bit because when I look, look back on the caliber of the talent, I don't think I was in the A group of talent there, but I was very dedicated and I worked hard um, and I made my way through it. But I, th I have to thank Lou for for getting me in. So that's my connection. Uh, uh, that that's really awesome. Now, do you still keep in touch with John Debney? Yeah, I see John every so often. You know, we, the, he lives in Burbank too. Oh, that's <laughs> so, awesome. That is yeah. so awesome. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what? John is just one of those really just down, like so many of us, and you know that that we we got to know through. And John went to Cal Arts, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. What, did he go into the music school? Yeah, yeah. John was in the music school. Oh. In fact, I think he was there a year or two after me. So you guys probably overlap, but yeah, John. John is a Cal Arts alumni as well. Wow, wow. So what? When did you? When did you get out? When did you start Cal Arts, and when did you leave? Started in '75 and graduated in '79. So you did the full four-year program. I did, I did the full four-year program. Yeah, yeah. You, I, you, I know why you're saying that because I know a lot of people either you know were out after a couple years or were recruited were, were uh, recruited by the studio. But no, I made it. I made the whole four years. No, and, and you know something. It, it really depended on the year. There were there were some years where you know a handful of people got plucked out of the program before yeah. they had a chance to finish it, and there was other years where they didn't really take anybody. Yeah. You know, and I I spent I spent three years. I I did the four year program in three years. Oh wow! Uh, okay. th th thanks to Jack Hanna because I went to him and I just said, look, I don't think I'm going to really, even though I got a you know I had a scholarship and everything. I it wasn't a full ride scholarship. And and so for me, it was like I did my third and fourth year during my third year. Oh, cool. you know, and, and and got out. So uh, but, you know, listen, I, I think people people benefited from being there longer. Yeah. Well, in fact, of all people, um, John Lasseter, who we all know, and yeah. very famous John Lasseter, they tried to pluck him out in the third year. 
And John wanted to do the fourth year because he he had an idea for a film, and I guess he and he wanted to to finish out the the four years. So yeah. I remember, I know, like I think like Musker and Brad Bird and Jerry were the first three to get plucked, and and those guys were all in your club, like your starting yeah. class, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and Harry Sabin was in the Harry class. Harry Sabin was in that. Yeah, uh, um, Daryl Van Sitters. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Morris, who else was in that class? Um, yeah, I mean, when I look back, <laughs> in fact, you know, there's a there's that famous picture of that class with with, with uh, the the one with Elmer Plummer. With Elmer Plummer, right? Yeah, the life drawing class. The life drawing class, and I'll often when when I do these talks, I'll always I often put that in my talk, and I'll say I. I look at this picture to remind myself that I'm an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, far from it, Joe. Really, seriously. I know. You know? I know. But, I know. But, but it is humbling to think, though, you know. But but it was great, Dave. Yeah, at the time, you know, we were we all had the same passions and the same interests. Little little did any of us know, especially those guys, that they would go on all all of us to have these amazing opportunities to, you know, really change the animation world. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, just how, how diverse the paths have been for so many people, you know? And, And so, you know, getting back to you, 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 did the four years of Cal arts, you graduated and did you start working at Disney right away? Immediately. Yeah. They, they, they picked me up immediately. And I remember, um, you know, each of the, uh, like the new, the new group of animating directors would look at our our Cal Arts films, and of course everybody. And it was it was um, Ron Clements was one of them, uh, Randy Cartwright, Glenn Keane, um, who else? Um, anyway, I remember everybody want was hoping, fingers crossed, that you were going to get picked to be Glenn Keane's assistant because he was kind of the superstar. Right, right. Even back then. Yeah, even back then, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but actually, Randy Cartwright picked me. And so I was Randy Cartwright's assistant. And I feel like, you know, it was very serendipitous because our our sensibility, we had the same kind of quirky sensibilities about, you know, art and about comedy and the world. And Randy really honed my my quirkiness. I look, I really, I really owe a lot to Randy. In terms of um, you know his his view his view of the world, and then yeah. Randy you know Randy went on to you know move to Japan, he married and worked in Japan on the 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 Nemo film, and um, and he he started to give me an interest in Japanese culture. Yeah, back then. and then again very serendipitously, fast forward when I'm at Disney. I spent almost 20 years of my career working in Japan on on you know Tokyo Disneyland, Tokyo yeah. Disney Sea. Well, let, let me yeah. ask you, let's step back for a second before we get into the whole imagineering thing. Cause yeah. <laughs> honestly, honestly, you know, like we're gonna talk for probably an hour, but really, you know, I have to have you back for part two because we're just not gonna cover <laughs> we're not gonna cover everything because I like to take you know, I don't want to rush through somebody's career. But but when you got to Disney and Randy Cartwright picked you to be be his assistant, what what picture were you working on? What was the first picture you worked on? The famous Fox and the Hound. Fantastic. And what character? Randy was working on Chief. Okay. The dog. And 
Um, and I think he was doing some of that. And I can't go, oh, oh, boy, you're really, really jogging my memory here, Dave. Um, well, I mean, we're jumping back almost 40 years, right? Yeah, really. Come on. You know? um, I can't remember what color socks I wore yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I know I didn't wear any. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I remember um, Randy was not the greatest draftsman and he knew it, mm-hmm. but he just had a deep understanding of character. I think Randy was, in fact, he, um, he was kind of a, a bit of a thespian. He did some acting. And I think there was even like a, um, like a, a animation drama club for a while that I don't know if he started or he was a part, part of it, but um and I think, again, another great lesson I learned from Randy was, you know, you can over you can overcome your limitations in drawing if you have a great idea, you know, and Randy always said, OK, what is the idea here? What is the great idea? And that served me so well through the rest of my career, too. And and, and it's also I think it plays to the fact that how, how it's not about how solid the drawing is, but how you're, like you said, conveying the idea, you know, because I think we both know many story artists who aren't great draftsmen, but they can do a really great story panel that conveys the idea. I I would say the, the, the number one example of that was Joe Ramph. I mean, Joe Ramph was not a killer draftsman. He was a very good draftsman, but there was no better story guy. I mean, he knew right. how to build a story and, you know, draw you in emotionally. A- absolutely. I-, I think without question, I think John Canemaker's book, The Two Joes. Oh, gosh. Uh, the the Joe Grant and Joe uh, um, uh, Ramft uh, really sort of showcases two separate generations of great story guys. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Um, but you know, so you worked on Fox and the Hound and then what was your next picture? Um, I think it was Mickey's black Christmas. Uh, no, black, black, yeah, black call. Wait, I can't remember the chronology. No, you know what? It would have been, it would have been Mickey's Christmas Carol and then, uh, black cauldron. Then black cauldron. And if you remember on black cauldron, I actually was in the effects department with you and Mark Dindle. You were. That's right. I remember that's that right. now. Yeah. I had I had come in. I was the last guy hired in, yeah. into the effects department as an in-betweener. And I thought for sure I'd be the first person fired. You know, when <laughs> when they finished the picture, when they laid it off, you know, when they did the big layoff, you know, and uh, and that didn't happen, which I was yeah. very uh, I, I was puzzled about. But <laughs> but you you were in the effects department with us, and, and that we had so much fun. That was such. I mean, Mark Dendel was a madman. Yeah, and that, I think you were also you were in one A one, right? You were uh, down- I was I was in a wing. I was in I was in room thirteen, and and actually, my first day that I started when I went into that office, there was the there was these big piles against the wall of scenes, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm walking in, going. Man, is, is, do I have to work on all of that stuff? You know, <laughs> and it turned out that that was the whole fair folk sequence that had been cut out of the movie. Oh my and god! It was, and it was just piled there as, as storage. <laughs> so anyway, but no, we're we're here to talk about you, Joe. Oh yeah. Anyway, no, it's just all fun. I'm I'm really enjoying this day. <laughs> no, yeah. So then after that, 
we did Mickey's Christmas Carol and and then oh no no it was Mickey's Christmas Carol no it, no it was Mickey's Christmas Carol then Black Cauldron because Christmas Cauldron. Carol was already done when I got there right and then um they started a special projects unit I don't know if you remember um that was doing um like little short films for Epcot and for Disneyland yes or um and what else did they do? They were. Doing- I think I. I think I had. I wound up working on something for the Exxon Energy Pavilion. Probably. Yeah. I-, I mean, it was very brief, and I. They just. I didn't. They didn't have anything for me to do for a week, and they said, well, "Why don't you help out on this?" Okay. So that was that was my my first connection to Imagineering because I I was working on stuff for Epcot because you know I think that was in eighty two or eighty three I can't remember when they were. Epcot was being being developed. They were under it was under production and construction. And I did some and Randy was working on it. And Randy and I did work on um the some stuff on Figment for the Imagination Pavilion. We did some stuff for um I think it was for the Delta Circle Vision at Disneyland. Did, remember Dave Mitchner? Oh yeah, 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 well, yeah, super nice guy. Was, yeah, he was really great. was just and a he, wonderful and, guy. Right, and Dave was kind of in in charge of all that. And it was during that period that I got made a full fledged animator because because Randy kept giving me more and more scenes to do. Um, and then actually, I got to kind of semi direct because there was really no director on it. Uh, a short film for the Seas Pavilion, suited for the Seas. Okay, and then it was after that that they started that same special projects unit. We started working on experimental animation for Roger Rabbit. Right. Okay. And, and Dar- wasn't Daryl Van Sitters involved with that? Initially it was Daryl Van Sitters was directing it. Yeah. Okay. And Chris Buck and uh, Randy, again, I was working, Randy and I were working together on it and, um, and then, um, and then, of course, there were, I don't know, there was a big shakeup, and then uh, they brought Richard Williams in to work on it. Right, right. And I, and I was actually slated to go to London to work on it, and through a series of circumstances, that never happened. I ended up working, doing storyboard work with Glenn Keane. I finally got my chance to work with Glenn, <laughs> but not in, not in animation, but doing storyboards. We were storyboarding some sequences for George Scribner on um, Oliver and Company. Okay, all right. But it was during that time that a um, a mutual friend got me in contact with Tony Baxter over at Imagineering. Yeah, and um, and to be honest with you, I was a little I was a little hurt by the whole Roger Rabbit experience because um, really- it was ugly. And we're yeah. not going to get into that because we like to, get into it. we want to stay <laughs> upbeat and positive. Yeah, okay. Let's just, let's just say it was kind of a little a little dark cloud moment. Yes, and, yes. But yes. I rose above it, and th- again through a series of circumstances, uh, Tony said, "Hey, you know what, Joe?" He said, um, "We we what we're lacking in a lot of the stuff over Imaginary right now is the kind of stuff that you do." And again, it it goes back to. Randy and the, this idea of you know fun, making things funny, and um, and I would ne- I would never compare myself to Mark Davis, but I think that was one of the, that's one of the things that Mark brought from animation to Imagineering. And that, when I say not so much funny, but finding those human things that people relate to, yeah. And I and I think Tony saw that they were missing a little bit of that, 
right and saw that and what i was doing and asked me to come over and it was it was such an easy transition i remember it was like i went over, i showed my portfolio to tony and some of the other people over to imagineering and um and literally a week later i was packing my boxes and i walked across the street because you remember they had exiled us from the studio to the location yeah, on I, I like to say they kicked us off the studio lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but um no and, and I actually remember uh you leaving uh animation for imagineering, you know, and and I think there was a little chatter briefly of people going, I wonder what that means for us. You know, <laughs> yeah. Is Joe jumping ship? You know, does he know something we don't know? <laughs> but if you remember, Dave, it was kind of a transition period. It was before um, Peter Snyder came. Yeah. You know, the new, Ed, the new Ed, yeah. Ed, Ed was still in charge of, right. of Disney animation. Yeah. The management was changing out. Right. You know, Ron Miller left. They were bringing in Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, right. yeah, Jeffrey yeah. Katzenberg. There was so much uncertainty during that period. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that was just after that whole green mail thing where, you know, we even thought Disney was going to be bought out and liquidated. And, yep. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. That 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 uh, Saul Steinberg was going to try Steinberg. and uh, right. yeah. sell off the park and sell off the film library. And just like right. he, he thought the company was worth more butchered up into pieces yeah. and sold off. Yeah. So. so so yeah. So it was the it felt like for me, it was the right time to make make a change because it yeah. was a transition time. And again, looking back, you know, hindsight's always 2020, 20, you know, it was a great decision. Now sure. there were, I'll, I'll tell you, Dave, there were moments, but just moments, you know, because remember it was right after that, when I left, right after I left, that really the golden age of animation happened. When Peter Schneider came, when when they brought in Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and they started yeah. Little Mermaid, I mean, that that was the renaissance really the renaissance of animation yeah yeah without question i mean it really kind of started with the the trifecta was the little mermaid who framed roger rabbit both from disney and also you you have to include american tale which was oh, spielberg God. and yeah. don bluth the, yeah. those three pictures really sort of reignited an interest in animation uh with audiences yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I think what it, it did was it made animation mainstream. It made, made it made it cool again. It was cool again. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us, it was never uncool. I know. Yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there were the, those moments where I, I kind of, oh, you know, I looked back. But you know, I gotta say, I was given so many great opportunities over at Imagineering. And it was the, they called it the Disney decade. You know, Michael Eisner, you know, he, there's, there's mixed opinions about Michael. I only have a good opinion about Michael. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw some of why it was difficult for him towards the end of his tenure, but um, you know, he gave me so many great, <clears throat> so many great opportunities and the company, so many great things. If you look at everything that happened during his, his tenure and he was about he really grew the company and grew the brand i mean michael michael i think uh, bob Iger, i think grew the company through acquisition and other very very smart moves but i think michael eisner really expanded what disney was as, well he he woke uh, up the giant 
Yeah, absolutely. He, he woke the giant. And yeah. that's really what, how I look at it. And, and I agree with you. I, I think there's a lot of good things that he had done uh, in expanding the company. I think he went off the rails after Frank uh, Frank Wells oh. was killed in the helicopter crash. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, you know, there, there was a lot of cross currents going on at that point. But yeah. but but you're you're at Imagineering. And like, what did you start out doing when Tony brought you over? Um, actually, the, the very thing he wanted me to do, he um, was I was kind of the gag guy. The first I remember one of my first two things I did. First thing was um, they were working on Typhoon Lagoon. OK. In Florida. And they wanted me just to go through the whole park and add visual gags. This whole the whole thing, you know, the whole gag there is that, you know, this typhoon came through and blew all this flotsam and jetsam. And I remember just doing like pages and pages of gags of, you know, all the crazy things that, you know, like a, a turtle on top of a box of turtle soup, you know, looking down and, you know, underwear that had been blown up on and, and made a flag. I mean, it's all this this crazy stuff. A lot of it didn't make it into the park, but I think they they wanted that kind of thinking. And then um, they were working on um, Euro Disneyland. And Tony, first one of the first things he had me do was work on their version of the haunted mansion it was called Phantom Manor. So it had, and it, they they placed it in Frontierland. So it had a Western theme to it. And I remember he had me do a whole bunch of little gags on, you know, the ghosts kind of uh, playing cards, you know, in a saloon. And um, I, I can't remember all of them, but um, so that was kind of the first stuff I did. And then the thing that actually really got me noticed was, um, they wanted to do a an upgrade to the tiki room and and michael eisner had this idea um because he had this all these all these new stars that they had brought into the company bet midler danny devito and so i'm uh, working with a couple other imagineers with uh kevin rafferty i don't know if you know kevin yeah we came up with this crazy idea for it was kind of like a cabaret and all the, the tiki birds were going to be caricatures of these movie stars that were, you know, part of this new stable of, of actors uh, that Michael had brought in. And so I did all these caricature bird drawings and evidently Michael loved them. And uh, and all of a sudden I got noticed. And I think it was on the strength of that that they gave me Toontown because um, they were going to, you know, they wanted to do this. And that's a longer story too, about why, why Toontown came about. But, um, that was my first big assignment. And, and, you know, back in those days when, when those guys first came in, when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and Jeffrey Katzenberg, they, they were, they were really getting into and under trying to understand what Disney was. And yeah. and so Michael Michael was frequently coming over to Imagineering to see stuff, right? All the time, yeah. And and Jeffrey too. I gotta say, and I gotta say, um, Frank Wells, you know, um, you you could see why they made such a great team. Like I remember when the uh, with the first pitch we did for the Roger Rabbit ride, we made a little white model. And um, it was quite different from what ultimately ended up in the park. Um, but I had the white model on the table and 
I took, you know, and and Michael was on one side of the model and Frank was on the other side of the model. And then some of the other Imagineers were there. And then I was there and I was pitching the thing and taking them through it. And I remember we had crazy shit like you were going to go inside of a washing machine and get spun around and come out the other side. And then some of the gags that we that we had that made it into the ride, like, you know, getting blown up and falling down. And so I'm explaining. It all. And Michael goes, Michael's like, oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. And then blah, blah, blah. And then Michael walks away. And then Frank comes over to me and very soberly says, do you think we can really pull this off? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, there was a yin yang to those two. Yeah. I mean, I know? think that, that, yeah, what I just described, I think perfectly, yeah. perfectly shows that. And then and then we had an extended conversation with Frank about you know you know we wanted to use low tech stuff and blah 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 and then and then some of the other more technical oriented people in the room I think put Frank at ease that we could do it but yeah. that was, it was you know Michael was all about that's a great big idea like he loved the concept and right. Frank was the practical guy like you yeah. know how do we execute this right yeah, exactly. exactly you know there was a funny story and I'm sure you remember this do you remember uh, uh the prototype for Star Tours was in a big uh shed that they built in, yeah. in the back of 1401 the yeah. Imagineering facility yeah. and it was basically a platform with like movie theater seats on it uh with yeah. seat belts. Of course. And, and, and there was a frame that they put just uh, sort of the uh, the the black uh, cloth uh, right. to, to kind of cover it all. And they had a, pr a projector. It was like a video projector uh, of a roller coaster ride that oh. they had um, choreographed the platform to move to. Right. Uh, and I remember they they invited a lot of folks to come over and, and test it out, like try right. it, and, you know, and and they wouldn't let you look at the platform moving uh, until after you actually were on it because right. it moved quite broadly, I would say. Right, yeah. you know? But yeah. but I had heard and I'm getting back to Michael and Frank. I heard when when Michael and Frank both rode that. Uh, the story was that f that Frank threw up and Michael and and Michael said, I love it. We got to do this. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. No, uh, no, I didn't. But it's it sounds right. I know Michael was like a big roller coaster enthusiast. I remember Tony Baxter telling the story of taking him to uh, taking him to Magic Mountain and that he wanted to ride every coaster there. <laughs> wow. It's yeah. crazy, you know, so I, you know, talking about being in Imagineering, it, it's a very different work environment, right? I mean, yeah. you know, from from like making an animated film, because there's a lot of sort of blue skying and concepting going on initially, right? Yeah. No, no, I think you hit on it, Dave, the, the difference, you know, animation, probably even today, it's there is a process that you do. You know, the stories may be different. The characters may be different. But but the pipeline to create an animated film has pretty much remained the same. You know, you got to come up with this. You know, you, you do the storyboard, you design the characters design the layouts. You know, it goes through it goes through a process. And the thing and probably what I found most enjoyable and interesting at WDI was that no two projects were ever the same. Right. Everything was very prototypical. You know, sell them were two projects, 
you know, yeah, it was either a different ride system or a different story, or you might be working on a walkthrough or a restaurant. I mean, it was, or uh, I've worked on hotels. Yeah. And then, I mean, later on in my career, then I even did cruise ships. So yeah. I can, I can honestly say, Dave, there were probably never any two days that were ever alike. Yeah, which is really, I think, really great for a creative individual because you're you're really stretching yourself on a regular basis. You're not in a sort of a groove, so to speak, where you're sitting at a desk flipping drawings day in and day out, day in and day out, you know. And, And I ultimately figured out that it fit my personality better. Yeah. I'm a people person. I really, I, you know, we did that imaginary. We did these Meyer Briggs tests, you know, where, where you find out if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Yeah. And the extrovert is not that you're, you know, uh, demonstrative and, and outward. It's more that you get your energy, how you re how you, where do you get your energy? Extroverts get their energy being around people. Right, right. Introverts go into their cave and listen to music or read a book or whatever, and that's how they get refueled. But I really discovered that's that's what I enjoyed. And while animation, I think, is a very collaborative art, you do spend, like you said, a lot of time, you know, at your desk by yourself. Yeah, yeah. So while I while I did spend a lot of time in my office at Imagineering and Designing. I just by the nature of the work, there's a lot more collaboration because it takes so many different kinds of people. You know, you're working with engineers, you're working with sculptors, you're working with writers, you're working with filmmakers. I mean, depending on the on the project, there's so many. The dynamic is so much more interior designers. I mean, the list just goes on and on. You know, right, exactly. exactly. And, you know, technology people, and you know, yeah. I that I, I I have to say, I mean, I completely agree with you because I I actually worked on World of Color with Steve Davison, and I I oh, wow. really I really could see, you know, the diversity of of skill sets that were involved. You know, the the uh, the people doing the uh, you know water the the water fountains you know and uh the engineers involved and the lighting people and it just goes on and on and on so it really is you know i i will tell our listeners that when you make an animated film you've got four or five hundred people six hundred people involved in making that animated film uh when you're working on a theme park attraction you have hundreds of people you're involved with yeah right Oh, and it, and it, you know the it it grows. Usually, start out with a with a small small team. You know, coming up with the, the blue either the blue sky idea or or you're given the idea, and you have to develop the idea. And then the team grows as you bring on you know all the various disciplines necessary. But by time it makes it to the field when it's under construction, there there you know there's hundreds and hundreds of maybe thousands sometimes depending on you know how big and how complex. I mean, if you're doing a full park. Yeah. Like an pod or an animal kingdom, or I was working on Tokyo Disney Sea. I mean, you know, it's, it's huge numbers of people that get involved. And then yeah. your job as a creative leader always is to keep people focused, as you, as you know. Yeah, sure. In your work, I mean, that's 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 the 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 prime. Once once you get to that point where you're no longer doing and you're directing, I say, you know, the you have to be, you know. You have to understand the big picture. You have to understand what everyone is doing and help them understand why 
what they're doing is important to the whole. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, let's, you know, look, Joe, I have you for an hour. We, we we got like 20 minutes left. I want to talk. I want to talk about Toontown, but I, I also want to let our listeners know we're going to have you back for a couple more sessions. Okay. I, want, I want to actually focus like one episode just on the cruise ships, because I worked on some of the projects that you were you know, at the top of, you know, uh, like that um, animation magic. Oh, you uh, did in yeah. the restaurant. Yeah, I worked on that. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we could do a whole uh, hour talking about Paris Disneyland or Disney Seas. And I've been to all of these places, so I, I know what questions to ask you. OK, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I, I let's let's spend the, the next you know bit of time that we have here. Uh, talking about Toontown, and and, be, and and the reason for that is that it, it was recently revamped, yeah. right? And so, but you were the guy in charge of the original first version of Toontown. How did it come about, and how did you get involved? Well, like I said, you know, I Tony brought me over, and I kind of started building this reputation as kind of the cartoon guy, you know, the guy that understood character, that understood, you know, gags and um, and like I said, it was that um, that Tiki Bird show that you know grabbed everybody's attention. But then um, I actually the next big project I did after that was Splash Mountain for Tokyo. They had done they had done Splash Mountain at Disneyland and um, Oriental Land Company. Um, their their mo was always wait to see the first version of something go look at it and then make the better version of it <laughs> right right <laughs> and um and i got assigned to be the i was the the concept designer concept lead designer on it and actually interestingly i probably did more hands-on design on splash mountain tokyo than i probably did on any other disney project because it was I was right on the cusp of getting that place where I was being promoted up where I was doing less hands-on design and more directing of others right. people doing the design and um and, after, and by the way you you moved over to Tokyo right um I never lived there oh okay I I would relocate for long periods um like like uh, for a couple months and then come oh, back. No, I think there, I think like sometimes as long as, long as six months. Okay. Or, there was a, there was a, a cutoff for tax reasons. You couldn't stay for you know then you would become a relocatee, like people that actually relocated there to you know do the complete installation of a project sometime would be there for a year or two. Um, but because I was always it was interesting, I was actually finishing up um splash mountain in tokyo when they gave me toontown okay so um the um yeah so i think it was it was splash mountain where um they really saw my ability to start managing you know teams too because it's one thing you know some people have the ability to you know to create and to work individually. But like I said earlier, I always love people and I love the energy of being around people. And um and we and we just I just had this um, this great opportunity with um the the Splash Mountain thing to work not only work with the Japanese but the the WDI teams 
And I think the company saw that, okay, this guy can handle, you know, managing a team. Yeah. And what was great about Toontown was it was so under the radar. We um we were a bunch of ragtag all all the I, I would say I it was a B team that actually rose to the occasion and become an A team. And I say that because it was right when Euro Disneyland was being built. Okay. So literally the A team was in Paris. They were there getting getting that amazing park done. You know, it was Michael Eisner's first park. Right. But at the same time, we were doing Toontown. And um and a lot most of us were pretty green. They had a couple, they they paired us up with this incredible gentleman by the name of Dave Burkhart. And every time I talk about Toontown, I have to mention Dave. Um Dave was like, he was only 10 years older than me, but he was like my father figure. He was the adult in the room, but mm-hmm. still knew how to have fun. Um, he had come from Disneyland and um, actually he was originally an Imagineer and then went down to Disneyland and was in charge of a lot of the projects, the the in-house projects at Disneyland. So um, he also knew how to bridge the a lot of the politics between WDI and Disneyland, because it was and, all- and just so our listeners know, uh, I don't think a lot of people are aware of it, but like Disneyland and Disney World, they're like their own like silos, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and Imagineering is is sort of separate from those two and, you know, from the Disney Disney World, yeah. to Disneyland. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's it's become more more integrated in the way WDI works with the parks and how yeah. the parks work with WDI. But at that time, you know, it, it was almost, they were almost separate entities, you know? Yeah. Disneyland had its own in-house group of designers and there was WDI. So there was always this little bit of friction, but Dave was a great bridge builder and he knew how to, you know, get the WDI people to understand the value of what the, the Disneyland people brought to it. Yeah. I think it was because of that. It was a, the project went very smoothly in that regard. And, um, and we did that project in two years from, right. from a sheet of paper, which by WDI standards, that's pretty, that's pretty fast. Sure. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about the design philosophy within the, the original Toontown? Uh, because I, I know a little bit about it, but I, I'd like you to talk about how, how you came up with that. So, um, initially it was just going to be, in fact, if you go back and look at some of the early drawings, it was just, it was going to be called Mickey land and it was just going to be the little Mickey neighborhood. And that grew out of they had a thing at Walt Disney World called, I think it was called Mickey's Birthday Land. And uh, it proved to be very, very popular because it guaranteed people a place to see Mickey Mouse. And that was really the driver for why they did Toontown at Disneyland. Because prior to Toontown, there was no place where you were guaranteed to meet Mickey Mouse and the characters. They were in the parades. You might run into them on on Main Street. In fact, I remember them doing some. This is before Big Data and and you know focus groups. But I remember them talking to guests and say, "Hey, where does Mickey Mouse live in Disneyland?" And they would say, "Oh, he lives in the castle," because 
because that was the symbol of Disneyland and Mickey was kind of the symbol of, you know, the Disney company. So people would just put the two together. So um, they needed a place where people were guaranteed that, yeah, if I go there, I am guaranteed to see Mickey Mouse and the characters. Yeah. So that that's kind of what drove, um, you know, why we did it. So it started out just getting back to the kind of the genesis and the, and you were asking about, about kind of the design philosophy. So we wanted to do just this cute little neighborhood where Mickey, Goofy, Donald, and Minnie lived uh, and Chip and Dale. You know, because those were the the big five, right? Um, and we started looking at um, at all the old shorts, and we quickly realized that the old shorts were all, all about the characters, and not so much the places where they 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 there was never like an establishing shot like this is Mickey's house, right? And this is Goofy's house. So what we ended up doing was just using the characters to guide our design of their homes. Like so Goofy was the easy one, you know? And we all also wanted to make sure that the homes had a physical nod to the characters as well. So that usually was about color, like on Goofy's house, you know, those characters all had very specific colors, very specific shapes. You know, Goofy is kind of long and gangly, so his house is long and gangly, and we used his colors on it. But the one... The one house that had a little bit of controversy connected to it was Mickey's house, because, um, again, after watching the cartoons, you know, Mickey is every man. He's yeah. the the leader of the gang. Right. He's he's humble, um, very lovable character. But there were some executives that said, well, he's Mickey Mouse. He needs to be like in a mansion. You know, he's the symbol of the <laughs> of the corporation. And um, and so we had a number of different designs, and one of the Don Carson, great designer, um, he did a, a drawing uh, using a uh, a Pasadena Craftsman house as the model, and I said that's perfect. I said Craftsman houses are all about handmade; they're warm. You know, the scale is is really not. You know, it's beautiful inside. You know, just yeah. the right scale. Those things that goes and it fits Mickey. I said we could see Mickey living in a you know a craftsman house from Pasadena. So basically, I mean, if you walk through, I mean, a lot of the design motifs are taken directly. Like we went to the Gamble House and those you know yeah. places in Pasadena. Um, and it was a bit of a, it was. I remember again, it was Michael, I think, who who understood and said, "Yeah, I get it." He goes, and especially when we we we, we did a little model, and we showed him, you know. Donald, of course, is going to live in this boat. And Goofy is in this crazy looking, you know, elongated house. And then Chip and Dale, of course, live in a tree because they're chipmunks. And then Mickey lives in this this craftsman house and he bought it. <laughs> and, and that's how that, that the dog. So it was just going to be that cute little neighborhood. Yeah. And, and, and let me ask you, though, about the house, because you decided not to go with straight lines. Oh, well, that was talk, the other talk, thing. talk a little bit about that. The other because um, because it was to, because it was Toontown and we and these were things that we learned, you know, about, you know, it's the, the old John Hench talked about why is Mickey Mouse so appealing? Because he's he's made up of round circles and we as a race, as people, we have a relationship with round things that are 
that are welcoming, you know, your your the the softness of your mother's breasts, <laughs> you know. Sure. Uh, you know, and you know, hard angles and you know, those are dangerous things. You're gonna get poked on them. You know, so um yeah, John always talked about, you know, Mickey is made up of all these round circles, and that's what makes him appealing. So we we just we we decided not only did we want to keep everything kind of round and soft, but give it a sense of movement too, because animation, as you know, is movement. Sure. So if you look at that lamb, I mean everything ideally we would have loved to have been able to do what they recently did in the the Mario Brothers land that they just opened, the Super Mario Nintendo land that they opened up in Universal, where the land is actually kinetic. Everything moves, you know, so it really feels like you're in a cartoon um, or in that case, in a, in a video game. But of course, we didn't have the money and we didn't have the technology at the time. And then the thing that really sealed the deal in terms of making things look brown and soft and no right angles was the Roger Rabbit movie, where I think they really pushed that. There's that scene, of course, in the movie, you remember where um, where uh, Eddie Valiant is, is on, in Benny the Cab and they go through the tunnel yeah. you know, and they come out the other side and, you know, and the whole, the whole Toontown is actually moving and singing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Damn, I wish we could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think we tried hard to capture that sense of movement in yeah. everything that we did in the land. Well, and, and you you created a very immersive environment. Yeah, I mean, we we actually we kind of had to because it was the first time that we broke outside of the berm. And for your listeners who don't know, you know, Disneyland, what, what Walt did, Walt wanted to keep the outside world outside and create this world where you know you didn't, you were unaware that there were you know another world outside. So he built a berm around the whole park that literally shut out the outside world. But Toontown was the first land that was built outside of the berm. Right. Uh, by virtue of the fact that they didn't have any more available real estate big enough to do what we were doing. It was three acres. Um, so we had to figure out how to build, you know, um, actually create a non-berm berm. And that's where we came up with doing those those cartoon hills, which was perfect because it really made it feel like you were in a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah, it it it. it acted as a screen to block out anything that you might see exactly beyond those hills yeah you know and and that's why the the beauty of it was that you were really sort of in this sort of immersed cartoon environment yeah you know there were lots of things about the project that at first seemed like a liability that actually turned out in the end to be an asset. And that was one of them having to break through the berm because then it forced us to create, you know, how are we, how are we going to screen it? And we yeah. came up with those cartoon hills. And and in the end, it actually makes it feel more like you're in a in a cartoon world. Interesting, in, in, in Japan, they actually, it's still inside of the berm and they only have a portion of the land in Japan. If you've been there, if you remember, has the cartoon hills. And then they actually have real berm and I think it's a little less successful because of that. Yeah, yeah, Be, because it's uh, it, it's it's not that flat, cartoony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 setup that you had done, but yeah. what you did with those had to have influenced how uh, they uh, used it for uh, 
um, the Star Wars land uh, because they've created these. Yeah, they yeah they had to do basically the same thing. Yeah, they that other rock work. Yeah, yeah, where where they're they they've created this environment because right. again that's kind of outside that's, the berm yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. You know? And, and over in Cars Land, uh, uh, over in DC. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that that went to thing. exactly, and that went to an extreme because they had those giant power lines. I remember, you know, on the outside of the park there that they yeah. Had, so they actually used had to had to make the hills a certain you know those uh, the, what were there the Cadillac Hills. Yeah, from, yeah. From Cars film, you know, a certain height so that you couldn't see out and see the the power lines behind it. Yeah. Which I think is pretty amazing. So you know, you you did you did Toontown, Town, and then we're going to talk about all this other stuff on <laughs> uh, on later episodes. But but twenty years later, they got, they went in and and revamped it. And you know, I thirty I had, years later, Dave. Thirty. Oh, three, was it thirty years later? Three, oh my gosh, three, thirty yeah. years. All right, uh, my bad. Uh, but you know, I I was talking to Tony Baxter uh, some time ago. Uh, when I was working on my Claude Coates book and, uh, and, you know, I asked Tony, you know, had he ever had a conversation with Claude about, you know, tearing out something that he had worked on, you know, because he had been there long enough that they, they actually did. Yeah. And, and and Claude kind of felt like, well, you know, he, he was ambivalent about it. He he didn't feel bad. He he felt like, hey, it's time for some change. You yeah. know, uh, we, we need to keep moving forward. And, and and I think he also pointed to the fact that Walt had viewed the parks as never being completed. They were yeah. always evolving and changing. There were new things coming and old things leaving and things being re, you know, reworked. Yeah. So how do you feel about 30 years on they went in and revamped uh, Toontown? I'm, I'm 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 thrilled that they they did. I I have not seen what they've done there. Yeah. Um I'm just happy that they they did that. I mean in fact there was a moment where um rumor was that they were going to tear it out completely for the expansion of Star Wars land of uh, Galaxy's Edge. And I think at one point they were even thinking about it using that as part of galaxy's edge. Ah. And um, so when I heard that they were going to, you know, put in the Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway and then, you know, go back in and revamp the land. That's great. Now, had they tore it out, you know what? I'm kind of of the same mind as Claude, you know, you know, working on films and, and so, so much of media, the things that we do are, are temporal, you know, they come and they go, I mean, it's a little bit if you if you study Buddhism at all, you know, it's it's all about the joy of doing like where they do those those incredible sand paintings, you know, they'll spend days doing them and then they destroy them. But they had the the joy of doing it, you know, yeah. and I always think back, you know, so many of the things I did, it was the joy of doing it. And especially with Toontown. Um, so I honestly I was I was thrilled that they were going to go back in and rework some of the things, um, tear some things out, add other things. And it sounds like they did it with a real eye to um to the net to to a newer generation of users, you know, yeah. and how, how they use it. I think Disneyland's very good about studying, you know, their guests' wants and needs. And and I think, you know, we originally 
knew we were trying, well, we were originally trying to create a kid's place, you know, with things for kids to do with slides and, you know, ball pits and those kinds of things. We learned that a lot of them didn't work in a theme park environment because um, of the volume of people. Yeah. You know, it's one thing on a playground, you know, you have, you know, 25, 30 kids a day going on a slide. In a theme park, you have 20,000 people a day, you know, yeah. going through something. So there was more, um, there were, there were accidents, kids got hurt. So we learned, we learned, we learned lessons about how you design things for a theme park. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they really took those lessons to heart and the kind of like, I hear there's green areas and there's places for kids to sit and there's a picnic area. And I go, you know what, that's probably a smarter approach to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Joe, I, I think we're going to leave it th- th- with that. Okay. <laughs> because I, if I start asking you more questions, we'll be here for for hours. Uh, so I I, I want to have you back and I want to do a show just talking about the cruise lines. The cruise lines were, you know, because I love the Disney cruise line. They they do it right. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was again, I was very fortunate. I I was involved with the cruise line from its inception back when they did the first Magic and the Wonder. And I, yeah. I was working on uh working on those early on. So yeah, that'd be great, Dave. Okay. A- so okay. We're, <laughs> so so with that, I'm going to say, Joe Lance Cicero, it's been a pleasure having you on the Skull Rock pro- podcast. And I'm looking forward to having you back when you're back in the country and when I'm back in the country, because we're both okay. leaving the country soon. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, safe travels to you, Dave. And to you too. Uh, <laughs> and I, I will see you again uh, next time on okay. the Skull Rock podcast. Or we'll, or we'll maybe run into each other at another animation thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, All right. Joe. All right. Thank you, Dave. It was great fun. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. And there you go. Joe Lancis wrote uh, one part of many that is coming up in the uh, the months to come. Artist and Imagineer and all around uh, Renaissance man. Yeah, no, he's he's absolutely terrific. Some great stories and many more coming up. Uh, so I'm looking forward to having Joe back a number of times. I, I think we could do three or four shows with him. He's got a lot to say, Dave. <laughs> he does. He really does. <laughs> well, I love it. And uh, thank you all so much for making it to the end of this episode. Um, you're following the show because you're a lover of Disney and pop culture, and we do certainly appreciate that. Be sure you check us out on all the social medias, Facebook, tw- uh, Twitter, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, if you will, as well. Follow Dave and myself on our personal uh, LinkedIn pages. And be sure to drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you, Dave or Al John at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, you can follow me too, uh, Al John, uh, Al John Rocks, Al John Go on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram as well, and our sister podcast too that I produce, the Dining at Disney podcast. Dave, so much happening for you this week. Why don't you give them a rundown? Yeah, no, it's a, it's going to be a busy week, but I wanted to let all our listeners know I'm doing another Facebook Live event with the wonderful world of animation and Neil Cantor uh, from that organization. And on Thursday, this coming Thursday, uh, 
June 22nd, uh, we're doing a Facebook Live event all about the 35th anniversary of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Can you believe it? 35 years ago this week, Roger Rabbit went into the theaters. So uh, 35th anniversary of Roger Rabbit this Thursday, Facebook Live. Um, just uh, check my um uh facebook page uh for the links uh al john's gonna put it into the show notes uh so thursday at 5 p.m pacific standard time uh thursday june 22nd and we'll be doing a facebook live event and then next weekend i'm at a uh disney historians event uh for a conference on friday and saturday so i'm looking forward to that because i get to see a whole bunch of people i don't normally see throughout the year uh, a whole bunch of friends so uh, it's going to be a very busy week ahead uh check out my social media pages uh, for some pictures and with that al john i would say go out and have a fantastic week uh and uh, we'll see you back here next monday right here on the skull rock podcast I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast. Here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.